Welcome to One Cause Church. We hope you enjoy this inspirational message. So Pastor Eric's message that he began last week is called Independence, two words. And it's about the life of David and how David depended on God and where this led David and what this brought David out of and into. And so I'm going to recap um, where Pastor Eric walked through in detail last week. If you did not, if you weren't here for Pastor Eric's message, you need to listen to it on podcast or on the live stream. Somehow get a hold of it because it was a great message and it was very helpful. Um, so I'll touch on it a little bit, but uh, if you have the opportunity to listen to it, or even if you were here, go back and listen to it again. It's just a great message, great reminder. Um, it's, he started out with the story of David, starting with David <clears throat> as a young shepherd boy. Um, the day that Samuel showed up at David's house because God had instructed Samuel to go find a new king among Jesse's sons. And um, Saul had been king up to this point, but God was going to remove the anointing of king off of Saul and wanted to place it on the new king. And that king was to come from Jesse's sons. So Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, who is David's father, and he says, I need you to present for me your sons because I need to find the new king. Well, Jesse presents his oldest seven sons. And I find it interesting that when Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, he sees Eliab, the the oldest of the sons. And apparently Eliab was a strapping specimen of a man because Samuel immediately saw the oldest son and said, oh, that's probably who God's going to pick. That's who he's going to want me to anoint king. And I could relate to Samuel in this moment because sometimes when God gives me direction, I see what makes sense and I say, okay, God, I'll take it from here. I know where you're going with this and I'll, I, I got you. And then when it doesn't turn out the way that I thought God should do it, I sometimes get disappointed and upset with God because he didn't do it the way I thought he should. And so I, I related with Samuel here by, by choice, but, but thank God Samuel's not like me, and he continued to go down the line of Jesse's sons, and each one, the answer was no. God said, no, he's not the one. And so because Samuel's faith in God is stronger than his faith in Jesse, he says, well, it's none of these. Do you have another son? Because I know that God told me it would be one of your sons, and Jesse says, yeah, I mean, there's the runt in the field, David. I could send for him. And Samuel, of course, says, yes, bring him. And this was not no big deal that Jesse did not present all of his sons. When, a, when the prophet comes and, and tells you to bring your sons, you do what he says. So the fact that Jesse even took the chance of not bringing David to, in the lineup with his sons speaks of just the rejection that David faces from his father. And so David's already, and I don't think this was the first time that David had faced rejection from his father. It seems as though there was already a course of action that has been taking place. You know, David at one point in the scripture says that he was conceived in sin. And so it just kind of leaves you hanging. Like, what does that mean? Did Jesse not think he was David's dad? What would the deal was here? We don't know for sure. All we know is that there was some serious issues with David not being accepted by his father. But then we move on to the 
day where the Philistine army faced the Israelite army, and this is when Goliath shows up on the scene. And that day, because Jesse, David's father, is too weak to be in battle himself, he sends David to the field to take provisions for his brothers who are fighting. And so David, and to check on them and report back. So David shows up there, and he sees Goliath making these threats, and Goliath has challenged, if one man from your army can come and face me, then whoever wins the other person's army will serve us. And then there were also some promises made that if the man from the Israelite army defeated Goliath, he would get the king's daughter and no taxes for life. So that sounded pretty good to David. All the men had been talking about it, and David goes over there and says, now wait a minute, what? What does the guy get who defeats Goliath? Because he's interested. Well, his oldest brother, Eliab, says, what are you doing here? Why are you even here talking about this? Why don't you go back and tend to those few sheep that you tend to? So not only is he shaming him and acting like he doesn't have the ability to fight with them, but he also minimizes what it is that David does on a regular basis. Don't you have those few sheep to tend to, your little menial job back at home? You need to get back to that. So he ridicules David. So now David's been rejected by his father, and he's been rejected by his oldest brother, who should be a source of strength for David, but he's not. So then, later on down the road, when David, after David is anointed king, how that happens is when David receives the anointing as king, the anointing leaves Saul, the previous king. And so after Saul experienced the anointing being lifted off of him, and then he watched the way that people responded to David. And the people loved David. And there was that song that Pastor Eric told you about last week that it said, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So David was just seen as a much greater king than Saul. Well, this began to eat at Saul. And he was just overcome with jealousy and with envy. And he began to hate David because of it. And so his plan was, I'm going to kill David. I don't know what Saul thought he was going to gain from that, if he thought he would be king again. But either way, he he wanted to get rid of David. So he began to take thousands of men and hunt David down to kill him. So now David is being hunted by his mentor and his king, who he was so loyal and faithful and remains loyal and faithful to. And he's having to just escape Saul and and his men. So now it's his dad, his brothers, and his king all hate David. And then, in order to escape Saul, David decides to hook up with the Philistines, the enemy army. But he thinks that if he goes and hides out among them, that Saul won't bother him anymore. And it sounds like a good plan. And so he does that for a time. And um, in the process, he moves to Ziklag, and that's where he establishes his residence and he's hanging out with the Philistines. Well, when it's time to go to battle, they say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This guy is not going with us. He's not one of us. And David says, I've spent all this time trying to convince you that I'm with you. And they say, no, 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 no. So now, the new army he's joined up with has rejected David. So David goes back to Ziklag with his tail tucked between his legs because he's not allowed to go to battle with the Philistines. 
Well, on approaching Ziklag, David and his men come upon the city and they realize that everything that they own has been robbed and the city has been burned to the ground. And on top of that, all of their wives and their children have been taken. So they're kidnapped, gone, not there. They've lost everything that they own. What does David have left? I mean, I've thrown pity parties for myself over much less. Come on. But, and so in the process, it says that when they discovered that their wives and children had been taken, they wept until they had no more strength. Now that is some sorrow. So here he is in this place in his life. He has no relationship with his family. His king has rejected him. He has no army to be a part of, and now his wives and his children have been taken from him, and everything he owns has been stolen or burned to the ground. I'd be doing some weeping as well. And in this moment, now his men begin to turn on him. The men that are with David look at him, and they think of stoning him because they're so upset that this is what he's brought them to. And they start to blame David, and they want to kill him. But they don't. And let me just tell you, David had the opportunity, just like you've all had the opportunity, to let your problems become excuses. To curl up in a ball and get, attach yourself to a victim mentality and just embrace the hurt and rejection that you faced. And you'd be justified to do it. At this point, who wouldn't blame David for saying, woe is me? I mean, he's been through some stuff. Like I said, I've said woe is me over way less. But he didn't choose to attach himself to the experiences that he's had. He attached himself to the Lord, his God. Instead of laying down and giving up, instead of crawling into a corner, sucking his thumb and feeling sorry for himself, he refused to let his feelings and emotions dictate his decisions. A, a preacher years ago, I heard him say, don't nurse it and rehearse it, but curse it and reverse it. And I've remembered that after all this time. The more you have the opportunity to nurse and rehearse the hurts in your life, the only thing that'll do is make those the most prominent thing. But you can curse it and reverse it and decide not to attach yourself to that. So just like David had the opportunity to walk through another doorway, you have the opportunity to walk to a different doorway. And David strengthened himself in the Lord. When David looked back over his life, he could see on that day that his own father rejected him and didn't even call him to the house along with his brothers. That's the same day that God called David and anointed him king. On the very same day that David's brother shamed him in front of the Israelite armies and his other, other brothers was the same day that David shamed the enemy and took down Goliath. And on the same day that Saul tried to, and on all of those days that Saul tried to kill him, God had protected him each and every time, and even at times gave David the upper hand on Saul, to which David remained faithful and loyal to Saul and didn't take his life. So if you'll look back over your, your life, chances are you'll see where God's hand was upon your life through those strained relationships, through those times that you've suffered loss, things have been taken from you or done to you, you can see where God's hand was on you all along and where he was faithful to you. 
Because God is able to help you recover all that you have lost. Uh, about a month ago, I was telling somebody at my house, and I know y'all have heard many stories about how Eric and I have finding faith. We have the ability to find stuff, but not, it's not our own ability. We tried that. That didn't work. But we rely on God when we lose stuff. It started when Eric started wearing gas permeable contacts. And I know some of you remember some of his stories. The thing about these gas permeable contacts, they're of the, of the devil. Because they, you don't just take them out of your eye, they pop out of your eye. And so sometimes they'll pop out of your eye without you wanting them to. So we found ourselves many times searching through carpet fibers, looking on the road. He was on a bike ride one time and one popped out onto the road. We looked for those contacts everywhere because not only are they annoying, they're very expensive. And so back in the day when he wore those, a $300 contact was like death to us. I mean, we, that was not the, we didn't have that kind of money laying around. And so we were always searching for these contacts. Well, after multiple times of us spending hours of anguish looking for them, we decided that we would start to pray about it. And there was one particular time that we prayed, and immediately after we had looked through the carpet for at least an hour, hour and a half, we prayed and immediately looked down and saw the contact. So then we, it took us a little while, but we learned, let's go to the Lord first instead of going through all the anguish first. So we, dis we discovered through going to the Lord when we would lose things that we had this finder's faith. <laughs> we could find stuff. And even when our kids would lose something. So about a month ago, I was telling somebody about this, somebody that had lost something. I said, you need to pray about it. Eric and I have just learned that we pray about it first. Then we don't even really think about it, and it pops up. And I said, and every time we recover what it is that we've lost. And immediately when I said that, I remembered the one thing that I had lost and still hadn't recovered. And I said, except there's this one thing. I lost my wedding band over two years ago, and it's, it still hasn't resurfaced. It's something that, I, that hasn't. And when I walked away from that conversation, I said, Lord, I still trust you to find that wedding band. And it wasn't anything fancy, but it was the one I like to wear on a regular basis. But sometimes when my hands get cold, I don't know if y'all are like this, my rings come off, like when I'm doing everyday tasks, doing dishes or something like that. And so in the process of that, I had lost my wedding band. That very same day that I had that conversation and walked away telling the Lord, I still trust you to bring that back. I was in the laundry room taking a load out of the washing machine to put it in the dryer, and I see a pocket knife wedged underneath a rubber seal in my washing machine. And so I pull that pocket knife out and I think, hmm, what else is under there? So I pull back that rubber seal and there's change and there's bobby pins and all kinds of stuff. And lo and behold, there is this gold wedding band that I had lost over two years prior. The very same day that I told the Lord I trusted him to bring that back to me. Don't ever think that what you've lost is impossible to be recovered. Never chalk it up to you win some, you lose some, because God is on your side. Therefore, you're always on the winning team. Let's start. We're about to the point where Pastor Eric left off last week. Um, so we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And this is right about the time that David 
showed up back in Ziklag and discovered that the whole city had been burned to the ground. Everything he owned had been taken, and his wives, wives, because he had more than one, God bless him, and his children had been taken. Starting in verse 6, it says, Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? The ephod was the thing Pastor Eric began to describe last week. It's like a breastplate made of cloth. And this is how they communicated with God. They didn't have the Holy Spirit that dwelt with them always like we have. They had to send for this thing to be able to communicate with God. And what it was, it was made of cloth, and it had 12 stones in the front of it, and each one of those stones had um, a name of the, of the children of Israel inscribed on it. And it, if you want to look it up sometime in Exodus 28, it gives a very detailed description of this thing, and it sounds like it was amazing. Well, behind that shield, there are two pockets, and those pockets contain what is called the Urim and the Thummim, which means lights and perfections. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it doesn't matter. It means lights and perfections. And those, those sat in those pockets right behind that shield where the 12 stones were. And what they would do is they would put this on and they would speak to the Lord and the Lord would answer them by lighting up those stones. Isn't that interesting? Let me just tell you, the world doesn't have anything on the things of God. You know, God is the creator of the universe, and all anybody else can do is take his creation and twist it or pervert it and to make what seems like their own creation. Um, and, they, and they'll take God's ideas and try to make them look like that they have power in and of themselves. But this is how they inquired of the Lord was through these stones. It's so interesting to me. Um, how I can see in things like this where we get some of the worldly ideas. Like, doesn't that kind of sound like a Ouija board to you? Also, one day, uh, Maddie and Pearl and I were in a store. It was the craziest thing. We, we walk in there. It was a weird store anyway. But then there was a lady who was looking at all these stones that were on display and she only spoke Spanish, and the store, English, store owner spoke English. And the lady was asking about these stones, but the lady that owned the store couldn't understand her. So Pearl, being the nice lady that she is, volunteered to help out. She said, oh, I can translate for you. So she goes over there, and Maddie and I are standing and watching this conversation, and basically this woman is telling the store owner, what she need, has need of in her life. And the store owner is telling her which stones she needs to purchase in order to get those things in her life. Now, this is something at this point I was vaguely familiar with, but for whatever reason, within a couple week time, I had interacted with people who, who put a lot of faith in these stones on multiple occasions. And so I'm watching as this lady, and this lady looks desperate. It's so sad. She looks desperate. 
So I'm watching as she's picking out the stones and the store owners instructing her all through Pearl translating. So Maddie and I are standing back watching Pearl saying, thinking like, you're not going to leave this like this, are you, Pearl? And Pearl keeps looking back over at us like, I don't know what to do. I offered to translate. I don't believe any of this. And so at one point, there are certain stones that this lady has been instructed to buy. And she says, well, I already have some of those at home. Can I reuse them? And the lady said, yes, but you have to cleanse them first. And how you cleanse them is you run them under very cold water with the intent of them being cleansed. And so Pearl's trying to explain this. And so she tells the lady, run them under very cold water, wishing them to be cleansed. And the lady says, okay, okay, I got it. And so she begins to pick out the stones that she needs on top of the ones that she's going to cleanse at home. And she steps back and she says, how much are they? And the store owner says, they're five for a dollar. And I thought, well, load me up with everything that those stones are going to do, and you can get all that five for a dollar, bring them on. Give me, you know, pockets full of rocks. And so she goes to the, to the checkout to buy her stones. And on the way, Maddie and I are looking at Pearl like, what are you going to do about this? So Pearl pulls the lady aside and says, let me just tell you something. Everything that you're looking for, you can find in Jesus Christ. And she begins to witness to her, I didn't understand anything but Jesus, but she begins to tell her about Jesus and how what she's looking for can be found in him. Because let me tell you, people, people are desperate for answers. And you have the one who has the answers dwelling on the inside of you. So take those opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And so this is how David talked to the Lord, though, is through these stones. And so I when I was reading this, I said, oh, well, maybe that's where the stone thing came from. And don't get me wrong. I know that God has placed minerals and things like that in the earth to benefit us. And there are very, you know, there are things like that that can be beneficial to us. But without recognizing God in the mix, it's powerless. So David was speaking to the Lord through this, uh, through the lights and perfections in the ephod, And verse 8 says, and he answered him. This is God speaking to David. He says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where they stayed, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross Brook be sore. Now remember, they, they wept until they had no more strength. So the 200 just couldn't make it anymore. So they left them behind, and David now has 400 men who just moments ago were wanting to stone him. But now they're the army that he's depending on. Let me tell you that David could see all of this as a potential setback too. The fact that a third of his army stopped at the brook, wouldn't even cross the brook with them. Or the fact that these men just a few moments ago wanted to take David's own life. But he didn't because he wasn't relying on his own strength. David strengthened himself in the Lord. He was relying on the strength of the Lord. And he was more convinced of the promise of God than he was the the abilities of the men that were with him. Verse 11 says, 
Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate, and they let him drink water. Then they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. What? Why would, why would David do this? So they're on their way. They have very little strength themselves. They're on their way to recover their wives and their children. God knows what's happening to them in the process before David and them get there. And they stop. Not only did they give this Egyptian food, you know, it seems like they could have thrown some food at him as they kept going by, but they didn't. They stopped and they nursed this man back to health. And he was a nobody. He was a stranger. He was an Egyptian slave. Why would David do that? What would be the point in stopping and nursing this guy back to health when he had such a mission in mind? The secret to that can be found in verse 11, where it says, the Egyptian man was found in the field. Where was David when Samuel showed up at Jesse's house and asked to see his sons because the new king was to be anointed? David was in the field. His dad overlooked him in the field, but God called him from the field. David knew that someone in the field was not someone to overlook, but could be a very vital part of the mission that he had and that he was pursuing. About 10 years ago, um, my younger brother was going through a really rough time, and so we were trying to help him, reaching out to him, and uh, sometimes it was just a phone call, but other times there was action that needed to be taken. And this one particular night, it was a Saturday night, and we got a call that he needed help. And so uh, we had church the next morning. Saturday night is usually not a good time to uh, up, and, up and leave the house when you're in the ministry. But, and not only that, it was Father's Day the next day. So Eric had multiple excuses not to be the one to help my brother at this time. But he walks the walk. He doesn't just talk the talk. So on a Saturday night, Prior to Father's Day, he got up and drove down to Dallas and picked my little brother up, brought him back to our house. Well, the next morning, we got up and got ready for church like we do every Sunday morning, and we left the house early. Well, about the time the service started, my little brother walked through the doors of the church. We were a little bit surprised, but we were excited. We were glad he was there because that's where he needed to be. And at the end of the service, my little brother walked the aisle and gave his life to the Lord that day. It's a day that Eric and I will never forget. We were so grateful that he had given his life to Jesus that day. Well, as most of you know, a couple of years ago, my little brother unexpectedly passed away, which made me all the more grateful for that day that my husband didn't overlook the opportunity to help my brother, even though he had good excuses to say, not me this time. He didn't do that. And he took the opportunity to reach out to somebody in need. And because of that, I know that where my brother is and that I'm going to be reunited with him someday. Don't ever get caught up in your own loss or your recovery of loss that you don't extend a hand to somebody else in need because you're always going to find 
people who need help. And it just might be that by helping them, that that person adds to your life as well. There are possibilities for the guy in the field. Don't ever forget that. Please understand today that God knows where you are. It doesn't matter how you got there. Maybe it was a wrong turn you took to your, took on your own, but he knows where you are, and your significance is just as great where you are as it ever has been. And it doesn't matter how meaningless you feel like what you do is, God knows where you are, and he can use you right where you're at. Don't ever feel less than or like he can't. He has a plan for you right where you are. And like I said, it doesn't matter how you got to where you are. Your location isn't the issue. It's whose you are that matters. And knowing that you're in God's hands and that you are anointed because you belong to God. Because wherever you are, God is there. Let's continue in our scripture, verse 13. It says, Then David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethorites, whatever that word is, I don't know, not even going to try, in the territory which belongs to Judah, And of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David had an opportunity to get real mad at this guy right then. But David said to him, can you take me down to this troop? So he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to the troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So here this Egyptian slave that David brought from the field was just the guy David needed to bring him to the place of victory. And here David approaches this great army that is spread out over much land, celebrating with the spoil that he stole from David and his men. The fact that they were spread out gave David an advantage because, you know, it takes a while to gather a troop together to go into battle. And the fact that they were, they were well drunk and had eaten a lot. They were full and had been drinking and partying for a good while now. So they weren't ready for an attack, and David had the upper hand. So the Egyptian slave turned out to be the very thing that brought David to his victory. Verse 17 says, Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels in the field. I find this interesting because you see this number 400 again. That's the size of David's army. Remember, he had 600 and a third of them stayed back. So now his whole army consists of 400 men. How big was this army that... 400 young men escaping wasn't even considered. It says not a man, not a single man escaped except 400. So the whole size of David's army escaped and they didn't even count it. Not a single man escaped, oh, except those 400. So this was a massive army. And David was able to take 
overtake them. Look at verse 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all of not only his things, but all of his men's possessions and their wives and their children. See, David relied fully on God. He relied on God's direction and he walked it out no matter what he faced, no matter what he saw with his eyes, no matter what he experienced, he relied on God and God caused him to have the victory that he promised him. Jesus has so delivered you from the power of sin and Satan that you are in full recovery mode. Don't give up. Keep walking forward. He will restore everything to you that you have lost, that has been taken from you, or that maybe you've squandered away on your own. He will recover all. Colossians 2.10 says, And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Complete in Him means you lack nothing. Complete in Jesus means that there is nothing missing and nothing broken. There's no loss. You have full recovery. I'm going to close with these two scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want Christ-like victory, you can only do it through one way, and that's through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Bow your heads. Father, we thank you that you are so good and you lead us to victory every time, Lord. And any time we've suffered loss or setbacks, you're there to help us recover all, Lord. Thank you that you are with us always, that no matter where we go, you are there leading us to triumph. We thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. For more information about One Cause Church, please visit us online at onecausechurch.com.